Hi, this is Trevor Jackson. Welcome to Tomorrow Is Mine. Huxley Peckham has been a travelling journeyman of learning, in a way, having studied at three Southeast Queensland universities. The University of Queensland, the University of the Sunshine Coast, and now Griffith University, where he's studying a double degree in business and engineering. Looking at Huxley's combined learning and working experience, it's a veritable melting pot of ingredients that includes mechatronics, software, mechanical engineering, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, IT technician, even sales and marketing. However, it's the world of technology where Huxley's real interest lies. He's excited by the potential of AI and how it can help make humans more resilient. But as always with technological advancements, there's often an air of suspicion for the majority who tread with some trepidation in this brave and uncertain new world. As we talked about the potential of technology and the increasing role that it plays in our lives, Huxley and I began to explore more philosophical questions like, how much of our personal identity should we relinquish in cyberspace? How do you know when you can really trust someone when making a personal transaction online? What is the next evolution of the web? And should technological oligarchs control social media platforms like Elon Musk is attempting to do with Twitter? So Huxley, you're not just a, a learning journeyman, are you? You've actually travelled around quite a bit, various parts of the world and Australia too, haven't you? Yes, yeah, so um, I've lived in various areas around Australia, um, in Darwin, Wagga Wagga, either ends of the coast there, in Sydney as well. Um, the travelling around Australia for me has been a big part of, of my upbringing. Yeah, right. Because your dad was travelling through work or your mum? Or... Yeah, my dad was uh, travelling a lot for work. Yeah, so with him we, we were moving around a bit and um, we got to experience different areas. How do you think that experience shaped you as a person? Uh, definitely gave me different perspectives. Uh, you can obviously get quite caught up in a bubble from where you're from. So um, being able to uh, live in different areas, experience different cultures even within the same country is just such an inspiring experience. And what about overseas? You've spent time overseas. Where have you lived there? So I spent a bit of time in uh, Europe mainly. That was traveling around the mainland Europe, around Germany, um, Austria, Italy, France, uh, around the uh, Netherlands, doing UK areas. Spent a bit more time in Wales, which is more of my family's hometown. Nice. My dad's from Wales. Very nice. Okay, tracing the family roots. And Asia as well? Spent some time in Asia? Yeah, Asia as well. Um, I spent a bit of time in Singapore, um, Bali, obviously, being Australian, um, and also the Philippines. So. Well, not every Australian has been to Bali. This one, for instance, <laughs> I have never been, so I'm probably one of the few, but I know what you're saying. Very popular holiday destination for yeah, Aussies. That's it. You're a bit of a journeyman in terms of your tertiary education, so you're obviously a mature age student. I think you first studied engineering at the University of Queensland. Was that straight out of high school? Yeah, so straight out of high school, I did one day at schoolies and then did two months of traveling Europe and then went straight into UQ doing engineering. So that was my path yeah. straight out of high school. All right. And that didn't work out for you? Um, the first year there it was an incredible time, like really appreciate the experience I had there. Towards the end of it, there was a, uh, there was a little bit more difficult 
difficulty around my studies, around finances, and uh, I had to I had to reserve, I pull myself out from that to help things. Yeah. So where'd you go? What'd you do? Um, so I started working in sales and marketing, coming out of that, and then I transitioned into uh, technician roles. So I was working with third-party repairers, numerous uh, third-party repairers, and then I worked for Apple for a little bit doing okay. some repairs at the Genius Bar. Okay, yeah. that would have been fun. That was an interesting experience. <laughs> Definitely gave me some uh, t- stories to tell. So. Oh, yeah? Oh, do tell. <laughs> I'm all ears. What kind of stories? Um, it's always an interesting one when you, when you talk about uh, personal computers and personal devices. Um, we were um, probably one of the least trained professions with the m- most amount of responsibilities, I'd say, in terms of, you know, we have everyone's... Um, complete data in those situations and there's not even a there's not actually a technical certificate that you do to go and work there you just get experience and then you know you you're then handling um sometimes large company databases so let's just clarify this so when you're talking about your experience of working at apple was it actually apple you saw the issues apple itself as a company is uh, probably one of the best companies that i've worked for and have the have very strict privacy guidelines it's not so much Apple, it was more so the third parties that didn't have the training and the clarity around their policies with privacy. Apple itself was very clear and had some of the best training that was available. But so, obviously there's still individual operators, like the actual businesses that I worked for, some of them weren't as specific about it. And then also, you know, you've still got a person behind the computer. So they, um, Apple was very strict on the process that if you ever were caught releasing someone's private information, you were immediately fired. But by that point, you know, there's still, you know, it's still got Once the there. breach has happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, you still got a problem. So they were, they were one of the best out there for their uh, policies around that. And they, as a platform and as a, like, as a manufacturer, they've probably implemented some of the more honorable ways of protecting user data. Um, there's still concerns, even though at the end of the day, because anyone who's got access to that data could, you know, release that. So that's what sort of happened with an Optus is sort of a high level employee that released some passwords. It's very much in the news at the moment with Optus, but then Singtel as well, the Singaporean telecommunications company. I see that they've also been hacked lately. They seem to be the targets. And that's the thing, isn't it? You know, these organizations are carrying um, massive amounts of data and sensitive data at that. Mm. Is that where you first developed your interest in technology or that was already there before you started working for Apple and NIT? I'd say my first interest in technology was probably when I watched Iron Man. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. turned me on to uh, the tech world. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, later on, I'm not, I don't maybe idolize that character as much as I did then. But that's what really inspired me was the possibilities of AI, the possibilities um, that we can actually um, make humans more resilient, and we can solve a lot of these problems, if we do it in the right way. And then, yeah, seeing the problems firsthand in terms of people's adoption of technology was then another part that allowed me to direct that a little bit more. Technology can be cool, especially when you're a multimillionaire playboy. (laughs) 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 Not suggesting that's you, Huxley, by any stretch of the imagination. So when you went back to uni, what did you decide to do? You followed the tech path, did you? Yeah, so I initially did more of a, a broader path with engineering. I did mechatronics at UQ. I did my software and electrical 
and some of my mechanical courses there. And then I decided that it was a little bit too broad for me and that I wanted to focus more on the mechanical side. So I went back to USC to study mechanical. Then it was about two years into that study um, and I was everything was going really well. And I had a great uh, circle, great group of friends that were really quite supportive. I think that's always good. We're in this very you know, growth mindset, right, where we're just... You know, there is, we're just so passionate about our studies and there's always the opportunity to just, you know, whenever we're together, it's always growing and learning. And then, you know, that's when COVID hit. So during that experience, most of my friends at the time, um, there was a good portion that were Australian um, that were sent back to home. And then same with the international crew that I was with as well. Many of them got sent home during that period. So most of those friends weren't from the Sunshine Coast. They were studying there. They were either from other parts of Australia or overseas. That's it. That's yeah, right. It. So how did that impact on you? Did you finish your studies there, presumably? Um, so yeah, I finished my diploma there in technology, got my sort of what would be considered an associate degree in engineering, and then decided that, you know, during that time that with the current environment of studies, I needed something that was maybe a little bit more of a flipped style education where there was the ability to... You know, they were offering online um, education in a little bit, you know, more better fashion because we were struggling to get our classes in person. And um, it was just, you know, one of those, it was very difficult to study when you didn't really get much face-to-face contact with the lecturers or, or that there wasn't necessarily so much of the, you know, they weren't quite yet prepared for that online delivery that Griffith is at this point. So. It's interesting though, because you're pursuing a field that's, technology based mm. and yet you had difficulty in online learning like yeah. transitioning to that so if you had difficulty in that yeah. imagine someone doing english literature or social sciences or something like that totally i was really quite prepared for the for the online learning situation but i found that it was still a struggle for me um, i do like to learn in my own time, but there's just something else about uh, being in person and that formulative experience with uh, being around an, an industry professional. And then also, you know, with engineering, that's very hands-on. You, know, you can do so much of it at home and online, but you've still got to come in and get some of that practical experience. A lot of it would be theory, but I think the practical stuff is probably what you'd look forward to more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I very much so like the practical side to engineering. There's a lot of theory that also is very important. Um, I guess sharing theory online is something that requires uh, the right collaboration tools. So it is still even to some degree, you know, um, watching a, a two-dimensional screen that maybe isn't of the highest quality audio and visuals is often something that can just distract you from from the experience. Um, there was probably other distractions for me as well, but the main one was, um, yeah, probably just the the amount of focus I could spend on the computer for an extended amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So at that stage, what was your plan? You have your associate diploma in engineering. Where were you thinking of heading? Assuming there was some kind of goal that you had at that point. Yeah. Well, I'd been playing around with cryptocurrencies since about 2017 so a few years um, with my gamer friends we were playing Minecraft and different games and and so I really wanted to do something that was taking me down that path yeah looking at an emerging technology and trying to get ahead of the game and ahead of the industry 
Cryptocurrencies. That's a can of worms, isn't it? It depends on who you talk to, whether someone says that, you know, it's a great investment opportunity, usually someone trying to sell it, or be a, a very high-risk venture. That's it. Particularly now that so many people seem to be um, on board with it. You know, I mm. get bombarded with those inquiries from people on mm. all my social media accounts and my email accounts, and you're thinking, man, this is just overkill. Did that lead you to your interest in blockchain? Um, yeah, initially, it was probably what caught my attention. Um, we were talking about this currency that we could transfer on the internet that was very streamlined. So, you know, me and my gamer friends were able to transfer each other money really quick and easily from all around the world. Um, and I had a lot of international friends that we were trying to transfer each other money, but there was just so many different hurdles and there was high fees and it was quite slow and uh, just, yeah. I, I saw that there was a clear problem there, which created a little bit of some, maybe some trust issues for me. Um, you know, when your bank is holding the funds for a few days, you kind of wonder if it's there or not. Fair call. So you trained in blockchain somewhere as well? Yeah, so there was probably more um, industry experience that I developed while I was online during the COVID period. Um, you know, I spent about a year really locked in my dorm and um, just immersed in the communities that were being created during that time. And so, yeah, I got to talk to a number of professionals that had probably been affected by COVID and had to work from home more um, or just decided that they wanted to leave their industries and come online. So I was able to talk to a lot of people. And then as of recently, I've, I've started my studies in the advanced diploma in applied blockchain. So that's something that is now come out of that time that is more of an accredited blockchain course. And is that through Griffith or that's outside of Griffith while you're doing your current degree? So that's a vocational course that's being offered, but it pairs, we actually got a, a partnership with Griffith. They've acknowledged this course as okay. a part of... Um, so is it through TAFE or where is that through? It's like, through a private RTO that I'm doing it with. It's an interesting course and, and the way it's delivered is, is really quite engaging. Through the Blockchain Collective? Is it their course or no? Yeah, it's the Blockchain Collective that has the course and I'm uh, studying the... I'm actually delivering this course now. I've, I've pretty much completed it because there's you know very few trainers in this industry. I'm able to actually now uh, deliver it um, with Blockchain Academy. So I'm one of the lead trainers there. Right. So how do you explain blockchain to someone who still doesn't understand what it is? Um, I'd say that the simplest way to look at it is as a distributed database. So that would be that, let's say we were messaging each other on some chat. Each of us has the opportunity to store the chat history and we also have the ability to store it elsewhere as well. So it's not just stored within you know, Facebook that has all your chat history. You're able to actually store it within the, the actual people that are, that are transferring it. Securely. Yes. Securely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, as well. I mean, you could always argue the security of some of the platforms out there, but they're all giving it a pretty red-hot go. Okay. At what point then did you enroll at Griffith? You've just started there this year. What was the thinking there? Yeah, so I decided that I wanted even more breadth out of mechanical engineering. So I did, my, I'm still going with my mechanical engineering, but I'm bridging it now with business. And so for me, um, I wanted breadth, but I didn't want breadth in engineering. I wanted breadth now and more um, business. So 
I really wanted to be able to advise businesses from a business perspective with a little bit of a technical experience as well. So is this a double degree you're doing at Griffith? Yes, that's okay. right. Obviously, a lot of credits from your previous engineering study. So yeah, yeah so it's more business focused at the moment. Yeah. It's more business focused at this point, And then I'm just finalizing my thesis. So. so where is all this leading? What's the grand master plan? I think for me, um, I've always looked at uh, the world as there being all the best solutions all around the world to solve all the world's problems, um, but they're not being brought in the same space. So for me, it's about connecting people and looking to create the future. So there's certain things within the blockchain, such as NFTs, that I've been getting right into that allow that sort of interaction with community. NFTs, it's some kind of fun transfer. Yes, it's the same sort of concept as when you're transferring any token on the on the blockchain, except for, um, let's say you have a $2 coin. So that $2 coin can be exchanged for another $2 coin, right? So that's a fungible token. And then a non-fungible token is something that can't be exchanged directly with itself for another something else for value so it has a value but you can't exchange it for something else of value yeah you can't exchange it for another one of these tokens of the same value like your cars can't be exchanged for another car of exact value there's always going to be some difference in value there if you did car swaps you'd usually have to say you know what the value of that car is and the other car is and then fill the difference with some form of currency or whatever you want to (laughs) Yeah, this this is where it gets complicated, and I imagine where a lot of people get lost. But can you give me an idea of where you see this taking us in the future? Yeah, um, I think that there's a few directions we can go at this point. One of them leads to connecting all the great minds and the great people and just really people in general because everyone has the ability to have good ideas at the end of the day. So we're able to connect people from all around the world. That's where I see it taking it from my experience in in the projects. So the ability to bring everyone together in the metaverse and then looking at simulating real world environments online with physics engines and, and different sort of community scenes, sort of exhibition centers, these sort of things so that we can sort of sandbox the new technology and the new tools that we have online and then bring that technology into the real world. So transferring even more of our realized lives into a a virtual world. Yeah, sort of trying to simulate our real world as best as we can and then from there trying to bring those learnings, those teachings back into the real world. Something else that I know that you're involved in is digital wellness where does that spring from? What area interests you about that? Yeah, well, in my experience with NFT projects, the ones that I was most inspired by was where we could get together and uh, talk about mental health. And so it really actually created a better space for people to talk openly and not be so afraid of their identity being shared. They were able to actually talk freely and um, express any issues and You know, I would just, you know, most of that time I was building communities and doing community management. I was just sort of asking people how they were going and making sure that they were comfortable, lowered in stress, and then that opened them up to learning about these new technologies. That was the first step for me was establishing wellness and then educating them on new technologies. But isn't that inherently part of the 
attraction and the problem with operating online in that the attraction is that you can have total anonymity, really. Mm. But then the downside of that is it leads to a certain amount of mistrust about who you're actually dealing with. So how do you overcome that? You're talking about embracing more of the real world into that virtual space, but unless you have that trust and that openness, Mm. how do you know? Yes, that's definitely uh, what creates, we call like the dark forest. So, you know, you can interact with people, but you don't know exactly who they are. And that's where, you know, there's some of the issues that, that come with the space at the moment. You can do a certain amount of detective work in terms of transactions where you can follow where transactions have gone. What blockchain does. Yeah, it? yeah, that's it. Um, so that's where we'd start to build some trust and who we're at least transferring value to um, is we do a deep dive into the wallets they told us to send funds to and we just look at what they were doing. And yeah, that's sort of how we started to build trust to some degree. If you were transacting with someone, you would usually share your wallet addresses um, and you'd be able to see all the other wallets that they held as well because of the transactions going between. So there's some form of trust there. Yeah. And the projects that you're interacting with, there was some form of trust being built. But it's a challenge, isn't it? It still is yeah. a challenge. You still don't know. Very yeah. different to you and I sitting down face to face here having yeah. this conversation. I can see who you are. You can see who I am. There's no barrier. But online that's a whole other thing totally when i um came out of that experience i definitely especially after COVID as well i first of all valued that experience because there wasn't much of the face-to-face at that time but now coming out of it i can just really appreciate the face-to-face experience that we have now because it does establish a lot more trust and accountability if that person's willing to show their face to you then you know that you can to some degree trust them a little bit more Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So where is this all leading you? You're talking about wanting to build this community and build that kind of trust online. But for you personally, where do you see yourself heading after you've completed your business and engineering degree at Griffith? Yeah, so I'd see myself getting uh, right into the audit space, the community management and and audit space where we're able to build communities, you know, build events, but with some process of of certifying those that come to the event, both people who come to exhibit or people who participate, and then structure some form of, of experience through that. Right. When you're dreaming up the possibilities of what could be, who inspires you? Who do you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, um, there's a few people that inspire me. I often, uh, always the the older inspirations are probably drawn from, um, you know, Isaac Newton and Tesla. For me, they have been pretty big inspirations. In current day, you know, I am inspired by uh, certain people in the space like Elon Musk is probably uh, an inspiration. <laughs> it's funny, when you said Tesla, I was going to say, we should clarify that you're talking about the Czech Nic- scientist, yeah. Nikolai Tesla, <laughs> not Elon Musk, and then suddenly you've, you've dropped Elon's name up anyway. <laughs> yeah, so like I am inspired to some, like I'm inspired by Tesla's ambition, and then I'm inspired by uh, Tesla's ambition from the you know, technology side, and then inspired by Elon's side with business but i still believe that there's a there's something in between them that that needs to be bridged so 
Should Elon be buying Twitter or not? Um, I think that the first step, if we're going to do the next evolution of the web, is to establish a safe social media platform. I would say that there's there's actually better options out there than Twitter for this. I personally don't use Twitter that much, so it's more um, it's it's not a bad platform for short messaging. I much prefer the the experience on LinkedIn because you just get a much more genuine experience there. The way I see it, the danger in anyone, one person wanting to own a platform like that is it becomes their agenda. Mm. Sure, there are people that built Facebook like Zuckerberg and people who built Twitter like mm-hmm. Jack. I can't even think of his surname. Jack Dorsey. That's him. Yeah. And they've made a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But perhaps more in Twitter's case than Facebook's case, they are generally a very much an open source program in the sense that anyone can get on there mm-hmm. on that platform and share their view. Mm. So if it's one person, though, wanting to own it, particularly something that already exists in that space and go, no, no, I want this. There's got to be an agenda of wanting to control it. Why would you want to do that? Yeah, I think that in some of the reports, at least I know that he's planning on is to make uh, it more uh, open source and censorship resistant. So um, if there was a way to create an open source code and allow anyone to add guidelines to it and not just him, then there would be a better way of of managing that platform. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that starts to remove that central point of control and starts to look at how can we govern the internet to some degree because it doesn't, well, the internet at the end of the day doesn't have a governance. And so if we get the town square, which is so-called Twitter, and we can provide governance to, you know, the, the holders of Twitter or the people who participate in Twitter, then there might be a way to... Um, gain consensus on what should be posted and what shouldn't be really there's you know there's there's different opinions about that should we get consensus of every person on the platform or how many people should we get consensus from for it to really operate or should it just be as you see something that's wrong you then report it and try and gather consensus of a certain percentage which tends to happen now yeah. which is pretty much what happens already yeah if you've already got for argument's sake a billion people on the platform you're not going to get consensus from everyone no but My point about someone wanting to control a platform like that, the obvious parallel is is Trump, you know, Mm. getting ejected from Twitter and going, well, I'll start my own and I'll call it the truth. I mean, there's clearly an agenda. Yeah, Um, that's always going to be the case when it's really held by one individual and they have a large share. And most of the time, it's probably going to be in their favor and their agenda. So, yeah, I mean... The purchasing of Twitter and then putting it in Major League Elon's control is probably not the greatest thing. There's other platforms out there that aim to do Twitter, but in a more decentralized way where there's not really one ownership. Oh, really? Yeah, there is. There's, like what? There's a Twitter copy um, on, the, on a platform called Holochain, and it is called, I think it's Critters. Um, and it's pretty much a clone of Twitter, but then um, built in, uh, on a, in a decentralized or distributed way. Will blockchain change the nature of, because you're talking about shared data and securely shared data, would it change the nature of social media, do you think, eventually, or no? Um, I think it has the ability to change the way that we share and talk, uh, depending on whether or not, like, because there's blockchain and then there's DLTs, which is you know, the sort of umbrella for what blockchain goes under. 
So distributed ledger technologies have a number of forms, blockchain being one of them. Um, then you've got um, sort of what Holochain has created. Um, that, I think, in itself has a better way of creating a messaging service where each user can create their own apps that interoperate with a number of services. So when you message someone, it's not just you have to message them through Twitter or WhatsApp and then copy it over to other platforms. You just have one app that sends through multiple platforms to whoever has those multiple platforms as well. So it's a layered app style. So I'd, I'd say that in my eyes, I need an app that messages multiple people on multiple platforms, depending on which app they have. I don't want everyone to, you know, I go onto LinkedIn and suddenly everyone goes, no, we're using Snapchat, you know, and I go, all right, well, I want to still be able to message everyone as they, as everyone goes to different platforms. And it seems to be the case that you know, definitely this time in our, in our lives, we've been moving through different platforms and none of them work together. So you've got to kind of think of how do we message and how do we not put the power in the messaging platform as well? So for that to work, am I right in saying that everyone would have to have like a, a unique, secure ID? So it wouldn't matter whatever platform you're on, you could call yourself whatever name, it would all be connected to this one unique ID mm. that then would allow that to happen. Yeah. Because you're trying to contact, let's say you're trying to contact me on whatever platform and I'm not on it, but I've got my unique ID and whatever handles are attached to that on all these other platforms, it would just find me Yeah, effectively. Yeah, there would be a point at which you'd have some ID, some token that's probably bonded to your smartphone and then it's verifying your identity through another app, but it's not being stored within that platform. Or it's a very interesting discussion, definitely at this point, is you know how we're going to deal with digital identity. Um, but yeah, there's going to need to be uh, there's there's sort of a whole new area being formed around around digital identity in the metaverse and how we're going to verify people without you know providing too much identity. Well, again, I, I was thinking as you were saying that, that one unique ID, which I could see being safely stored within a blockchain kind of configuration, mm. that would prevent identity theft, surely. Yeah, it would. It, it's one of the solutions to these security breaches that we've seen in the last few weeks. Um, Uber, Optus, you know, there's even ones within the blockchain space that have happened around the centralized aspects of oh, blockchain. Really? So yeah. blockchain is not uh, infallible. Well, this, the, I'd say that there's certain blockchains that might be more susceptible to it, but for the most part, most blockchains are resistant to those security breaches. There's some that are a little bit like more susceptible to it. Um, and then there's companies that are built off of the blockchains that don't actually use blockchain technology so much in the way that it's intended. They just more build, um, you know, asset like banks pretty much on the blockchain. And so they collect identity, not on the blockchain, they're doing it separately and still the old way that we've done it in web two. Um, and they're collecting it, storing it like what they do with Uber and, and Optus. And they collect it, store it, have it in a centralized database, not in this distributed way. And so when a hack happens or some security breach happens, what actually just recently happened was the company called Celsius released everyone's identity after they were you know hacked and that sort of shows that you know we can still have 
we can still have these old ways of creating databases being brought into these new systems. So a lot of the times it's about the mindset, um, the way that you decide to use the technology and whether or not you're going to use it for the full capability of what it can do or if you're just looking at making money. And what about your modus operandi, Huxley? Are you just looking to make money or are you looking to inspire others or <laughs> what exactly are you trying to achieve? I like to lead with, yeah, yeah definitely purpose before profit. My inspiration is to really try to do something that solves problems for me and a number of people, especially around community building, creating ways that we can bring people together um, talk about different topics in an inclusive, open way and, uh, and bring back our focus to conscious wellness, inter- genuine human interaction. In a digital way. <laughs> in a digi- in, reinforced by what, in digital, and technolo- digital technologies. So if we can make sure that technology just can deal with the bulk of the work so that we can spend our time having these more genuine interactions, then I think that would be a positive thing to take from this. I've got to confess that it isn't easy to keep up with where technology is taking us. When I get the chance to talk to people who are seeking to push the boundaries in this field, I really do feel like I'm just treading water. But the future belongs to the Huxley Peckhams of this world, while the majority of us will be just on board for the ride. This has been the 99th episode in this series, so next week... We're going to do something special to mark the milestone of the 100th show. I don't want to say anything more about it at this stage, except that I'm really excited. So make sure you don't miss it. My name is Trevor Jackson, and I hope you can join me next time for Tomorrow is Mine.